During the spring, Passover and Easter are celebrated by Jews and Christians all over the world. In this episode, Rabbi Ari and Pastor Danielle discuss their practices, traditions, and some reflections on Passover being celebrated and observed by Christians. What meanings and challenges should we consider in that practice? Hogwarts Haggadah, egg-laying miracles, and reset buttons this week on A Rabbi and a Pastor Locked In. So here we are. Here we uh, are. Week uh, before Passover, and then two weeks, two weekends before Easter. And uh, uh, got to tell you, getting ready for Passover, a lot of cleaning, putting things away, getting stuff ready. And why are you cleaning? Well, uh, because I want to get rid of all the chametz, all the chumets, all the what's uh, Hebrew and Yiddish for sour stuff. Or so the leaven, leaven the leaven. yeast, yeah, right? Leaven, yeah, the word for leaven is sour hmm. chametz. Hmm. Anyway, so. Um, and you do that because it's commanded. I do that because I'm into doing that. Yeah. This but is, but it's part of where we get the origin of that command is in the Torah. Oh, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I do it because that's how I learned how to do Passover, and that's still the most meaningful way for me. Hmm. Um, so What's meaningful for you in that process of cleansing? <laughs> I mean, it's ex- a lot of work. We're experiencing slavery. <laughs> <laughs> My hands are dry. I have what I call pre-Passover hands, you know, from washing everything all the time. And I don't ever stop to use gloves. And I probably should. Mm. Maybe one of these days I will. But anyway, uh, just a lot of moving things, you know, all the Passover supplies from the garage to the mm-hmm. uh, to the house and vice versa. And, and we went shopping last week and got some stuff. Anyway, I have a meat order to pick up the day before Passover, which is Sunday, April 9th. And Passover this year is Monday night, the first Seder, April 10th. And so the uh, people from the butcher shop called me and said, there was something about the, your order we didn't understand. Is it Thursday or Sunday? Is it April you know, uh, 7th right, or 9th? Right. And I said, it's April 9th. He said, oh, yeah, oh, you're the one with Palm Sunday. And I'm going... <laughs> No, it's Passover. Well, no, I just, <laughs> until that time, I had no idea that it was Palm Sunday. I mean, right. you tell me what Palm Sunday is, I recognize it right off the bat. I sure. know when it is, et cetera, et cetera, what it's about. But it's not in my consciousness. Right. So it's like when we went to Israel and uh, together, and right. the Jews and Christians together, and said, this is the, you know, Purim's in two weeks, and people going, yeah, so? Right, right, <laughs> Even right. some of the Jews. But anyway. Well, um, and what's interesting about that is that... Um, you know, not every year do Passover and then Holy Week fall for Christians. Holy Week fall into right. the same line. Sometimes they can be a whole month apart. So it's not normal necessarily that you're always going to go, oh, if I'm picking up my Passover meat, they might also think it's Palm Sunday meat or some other meat, right? Because it doesn't always fall in the same week. So the reason it wouldn't fall in the same week is if we had a leap year. Mm-hmm. If we had a leap month to our, our regular year, making it a leap year. And so that takes the 12th month. <laughs> a dar with Purim in it and kicks it out another month long and puts Purim in the second one of those. And and those times, not all the time, uh, Passover will be a month after Easter. Right, right. And uh, and because uh, Easter is the Sunday after the uh, fall equinox. Yeah, and it, it's not by a biblical calendar, right? I right. mean, it's completely by a different calendar, whereas Passover is, right. according to a biblical calendar, it's not changing, so... Well, but we do change it because we have to add a, it, it right. rotates between leap and non-leap here. So that's why we get <laughs> right. it in there. So that's, it's just kind of funny. But anyway, um, the thing about uh, getting ready for Passover is that uh, you not only get your house ready, but you get the Seder service ready. And so 
uh, our first night, we're just having our kids over. Uh, second night, we're having our kids and some friends over. And what we do in our family as a tradition is uh, I have, uh, we all have different Haggadot. We use a different book with so, the telling of the story. Just for Christians who might be listening, yeah. a Seder, what does the word mean? Order. And it's the... The order of the things you do on the Passover night. While you're to, having the meal. While you're... Well, well, in which the meal figures. In which the meal figures, right. Yeah. And then a Haggadah is... Telling. So the Haggadah says, You should tell your child on that day saying how you got out of Egypt. And so Haggadah is the verb for telling, and Haggadah is a word which means the telling. So it's the telling of the story. So instead of having and a Seder, you should have can, a Haggadah, you, you have should, a telling. Right, Think of it that way. Right. Yeah. right. And, and today the word Haggadah can also just refer to the book, the book that itself. you're holding in your hand right. that tells you the order of the Seder of which the meal figures. And right? like everything else, you know, in religion, the number of options to do a Haggadah increases exponentially every year. We have a new one by comedians and we have a new one uh, called the Hogwarts Haggadah. <laughs> Harry for Harry Potter addicts and um, I read one this year that's specific to uh, highlighting the refugee crisis and highlighting so, the refugee crisis or I've done earlier years where it's been about fair trade chocolate you know if that, there's been slavery. a chocolate Haggadah yes and so uh, every year there's a new one I try to keep up with some of that we um, did one one year together yeah for both of our communities focused on um, eradicating slavery. slavery yep yeah so human trafficking I've been highlighting pictures that are the same in all these uh, X number of Haggadot, plural of Haggadah. Uh, uh, so we can talk about how these different artists mm. represent four or five of the different major themes in the story. And it's really fun when you use art because it's like ink blots. Right. So people start talking about what they see and then nice. they talk about what they think. And it's the story it brings the story out instead of just repeating it from mm -hmm. the text. But anyway... Mm -hmm. So um, th that's what's going on, and uh, it turned out that I have a, a daughter who has a friend, a Christian friend. She asked me today, uh, what, uh, what kind of Christians do satyrs? Because her friend did a satyr. Uh, but she did it this past week, which is well before Passover, right. and, and I'm going to love it either. <clears throat> and well before Monday Thursday, right. which often is a time when Christians remember the Last Supper or the Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples. Right, Monday Thursday, which is sometimes celebrated as a Seder. We're going to talk about that. Right. I, I, it's kind of funny because Monday and Thursday are Torah reading days. So when I hear Monday, Thursday, what well, make up your mind? Was it a Monday or was it a Thursday? But anyway, um, <laughs> um, so all these different... Uh, uh, Texts come out, and I put these pictures in, and we can talk about it much better. And uh, and, and it's actually uh, really important. Uh, so what my daughter was saying was that the the um, the, uh, the friend of hers who had a seder right. was that she put Easter eggs on the her seder plate instead of uh, instead of the roast egg that we put on. Justin. And you said that's not your favorite idea. No. So I guess I would have so many questions. Why an Easter egg? Was it dyed? Did it have a bunny on it? Of so course many... it dyed. <laughs> Otherwise it'd be alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. D-Y-E-D. -E okay, okay. Um, and I think the problem for me, just listening in, is that that's a Christian, has become a Christian symbol associated with Easter Sunday itself, you know, whether it's the mm -hmm. White House Easter egg hunt and roll or all those other types of things that, you know, you can sign up for your local city council. You can go and look in your local city municipality. Somebody somewhere is going to be having an Easter egg hunt for kids. And it's actually quite secular in many ways. It doesn't have any religious association. And I'm uncomfortable with the symbol because um, 
it doesn't have anything to do with, with Easter itself, with what I re- I celebrate as Resurrection Day. I think bunny, bunnies laying eggs is a miracle, and Jesus <laughs> being a yeah, miracle. No. no? Okay. <laughs> and I think ultimately it started coming in because it's a fertility symbol. And it's just uncomfortable for me. I just don't, I'm not comfortable with, with that. So springtime fertility, springtime, you know, eggs, all of those kinds of things. So I always wrestle with those symbols when it comes to Easter anyway. And we don't really do a lot of that. Um, we don't do hardly any of that at our church. Uh, sometimes, you know, we'll do a little something for the kids, but it's, it just gets a little bit, I'm just not quite comfortable with it. So to hear that an Easter egg is sitting on a Seder plate further, uh, it's further in terms of its discomfort for me. Like I just, I'm like, well, yeah, that's not even really a Christian symbol. Why it, Why is it there on the plate? Well, why, this, why the egg is on a Seder plate is because of the ox. Okay, so explain that. So. <laughs> <laughs> because an ox lays an egg? No. <laughs> also uh, a miracle. Yeah, that's right, no. Yes, the egg of the ox, no. It turns out that, if you that people didn't get together in nuclear families, you know, mother, mm-hmm. father, couple kids, they got together as clans. Sure. And so a lamb would not go around very far. Mm-hmm. It would be too small. Everybody would get a little bite of it, like we do today of the symbolic matzah that we break. Right. But everybody would eat from an ox, so that that would be the main Passover meal. Interesting. Now that sacrifice, since it's a festival meal, festival is a hog, mm-hmm. like hajj. To mm-hmm. go to Mecca, mm-hmm. Hag, same word. Uh, it's called a Hagiga, festival sacrifice that everybody eats. Hmm. And so this Hagiga is on a Hag. And so there's a thing, there's a tractate of the Talmud that's called festivals, mm-hmm. but it's not called festivals. It's called egg. Mm. Now, why is it called egg? <laughs> and because the very first statement is an egg, if it's laid on a festival, can you eat it? that's hilarious if it comes on holy time can you do it on holy time or at all i mean right so if it's it's a shabbat Shabbat, egg it's a shabbat egg only it's born on a festival so the festival law and the start with festival sacrifices and things starts with in the tractate egg because it starts with the word egg so you have a roast egg, which is not a symbol of a fertility symbol. I see. Because you roasted the dog. Because you roasted thing. it. <laughs> so, but but it is an egg still, mm-hmm. and, and and so you can see it as a fertility symbol on some level. Do you know when the egg showed up on the seder plate? Like in terms of rabbinic practice and custom, was it? It was a couple of minutes after the hen sat down. After that, <laughs> very good. <laughs> Yeah, I think you, I, I hear you've been sitting on that one for quite some time. No, I have not. <laughs> no, I just wondering like what I've never point. Been asked that question before. <laughs> well, we'll have to research it. That would right. be interesting yeah, to me. I have no idea. And I mean, we've talked. There's now an orange that can come up on a seder plate sometimes, and that's much more recent. The orange is because uh, uh, women uh, back in the 70s, I think it was, were saying when when a woman asked the head of the Jewish Theological Seminary, uh, uh, one of the faculty members said uh, whether or not women could be uh, ordained as a rabbi. And this faculty member said, when there's an orange on a Seder plate. So that became the symbol of It's like, nevertheless, she persisted. Nevertheless, she persisted, (laughs) right? That's what the orange is on the Seder plate for. There's a lot of new symbols. One is a potato Hmm. as carpas, the green vegetable, instead of or along with uh, parsley or some Hmm. other uh, fruit of the ground. Uh, uh, Potatoes 
uh, were fed to Ethiopian Jews when they got to Israel because after the Holocaust, uh, we learned that you can't give people who've been starving for a long time regular food. It would mm. kill them. Mm. They, their body can't process it. Mm. And so a lot of people in the Holocaust, after the Holocaust, when they were finally liberated, died because of the meals that they were getting. Wow. And so they, they learned to give them simple foods like potatoes. And so mm. putting a potato on the plate to start the meal is to bring somebody really out of dire poverty wow. and slavery. I saw just on the news yesterday, the largest Seder in the world is in Ethiopia this year. And all of the Ethiopian Jews that are still in Ethiopia are frantically making tons of matzah as quickly as possible to wow. get everyone ready <laughs> for, I think they said something like, 3,000 people or something crazy, some crazy number in the thousands of the number of people coming to the largest Seder in the world. Yep. In Ethiopia. In Ethiopia. Well. Isn't that amazing? They're coming up. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, because I know you guys have a Seder. Mm -hmm. You actually have it since your church meets in our synagogue and you have it in our synagogue. Right. Using the same caterer we use, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and uh, so what do you do and why do you do it? It's a great question. So, um, and, and part of this, I think part of our discussion today is precipitated by an article that's floating around the internet that sort of an article like this pops up every year about this time. Should Christians celebrate Passover? Is it okay for Christians to have a Seder? Um, and some people take very firm positions. Absolutely not, never, ever. Um, it's appropriation and it's uncomfortable and other people take strong positions of no, it's okay. And, and other people kind of fall in between. So um, for us, I think we're, a, I don't know if we're unique, but our experiences of living in Israel, um, having spent lots of time there, being in Jewish homes, um, being in the homes of Christian followers, you know, Christians who are following Jesus actively, but in light of a first century context as much as possible, who live in Israel, they all keep Passover. They all clean their homes. Um, they make sure there's no chametz. They keep it very strictly, my, my Christian friends who live in Israel, as well as, of course, my Jewish friends. So having been in all of those contexts, Passover became, many years ago, I mean, probably 15, 20 years ago, uh, important to me in terms of understanding um, and, and in terms of practice. The, the practice for me personally has to do with uh, what I see in my Gospels and what I see in the Torah. So first of all, I take the Torah seriously. Whether or not there's a lot of other Christians out there that do, um, I take it seriously. And I take it seriously because I think Jesus does. And I don't think that he uh, supersedes the Torah or replaces the Torah or tells us to stop keeping it. Now, obviously, there are things that both um, Jews and Christians don't do that are in the Torah because the temple isn't built and they're, you know... Um, there are cultic practices that we aren't part of anymore that are part of all of those types of things. That's It's not part of daily practice. Um, as a Gentile, non-Jewish follower of Jesus, I feel like there's a blessing in understanding the first century Jewish story of Jesus, the life, the Jewish life of Jesus. And I don't feel the obligation to do those things because I, I'm not Jewish, but I feel like there's something that I can understand and, um, and be enriched by as a result of understanding it. Also, not just 
It's not only that Torah says, hey, you should keep this festival and you should do it for all the time and you should tell your kids, which I take those words seriously. It also is that Jesus kept the festival. In Luke chapter 2, we have a story of him getting lost. And it says in verse 41, every year his parents, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they also went up to the feast according to the custom. And after it's over, he kind of gets lost on the way home. And there's this whole other story. But the part at the beginning is every year they go to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. And so I know that my Messiah, my rabbi, uh, went and celebrated Passover on an annual basis in Jerusalem, and his followers continued to do so as well, who were all, it was all initially a Jewish movement. So if I don't understand and appreciate that practice, or at least try to understand it from a theological and academic level, then there's something I'm missing. I'm missing out on part of uh, how Jesus grew up and how he understood his Jewish self, his first century Jewish self. So those are some of the reasons why I personally do it. Um, also, there's a lot of bad history between, uh, on the part of Christians, between Christians and Jews over the last 2,000 years. At this time of year. And at this time of year in particular. History that I'm very sensitive to because I've been in Jewish context and, um, you know, and because it's just who I am. It's, it's part of what I like to study and understand. And I have often wondered what could have been done um, in my Christian tribe, in our clan, to prevent these painful misunderstandings, these accusations of blood libel, these the pogroms, the ghettoization, all of those things that, that powers did, Christian powers did to the Jewish people over the centuries. And I feel like I can uh, find the origin of all of this pain and suffering to the separation of our story from not understanding Jesus as a first century Jew and teaching as a first century Jew. Now, how Gentiles come in and how we get grafted into that root and how all of that works, sure, there's complication to that. Do we share same space? Do we not share same space? Are we obligated to keep Shabbat or to the festivals? Well, the Apostle Paul says no. The Apostle Paul says no, your Gentiles are not obligated to do circumcision. They can still come into this movement of Jesus without that obligation. Do you think that Messianic Jews have that obligation. But I think if you're still a, if you've been a Jew and you decide to follow Jesus, I think you're still a Jew. And I wouldn't encourage a Jewish brother or sister who had decided to follow Jesus to stop being Jewish in their practice. I also wouldn't encourage a Gentile who wanted to follow Jesus to start being Jewish. I would say, no, no, be a Gentile. You're part of the blessing of Abraham, right? I get to come in because God decides that he's going to bless all of the nations on earth through the Jewish people. So I'm very comfortable with the fact that I'm a Gentile. I might have holy envy occasionally that I'm not a Jew, but I'm a Gentile and I'm glad to be part of that uh, fulfillment of God's promise to, to have Gentiles come in. I don't need to change my religious identity in order to follow Jesus, or my ethnic identity, rather, in order to follow Jesus. Gentiles were allowed to follow. And so I want to kind of live in that space. But I also want to do it with a lot of knowledge and respect and understanding of how I fit into that story, that I don't supersede the story, that the commandments of Torah aren't gone, um, that Jesus, you know, he says, I didn't come to abolish these, the Torah. I came to fulfill it. And what I, mean, what I understand by that is to live it in such a way that, that he shows us how to live it. So when I do Passover, it's with the intent and desire to keep the commandments that I see in Exodus, um, to understand the core identity of the Israelite people, um, to continue to experience a story of freedom, that God is continuing to set us all free from our Egypts. And, um, 
and that God is that he has that desire of rescue and redemption. And then I also want to understand how Jesus fits into that story and how I can fit into that story too. But I'm not comfortable with pretending that I'm Jewish or trying to appropriate those symbols. I'm I'm trying to listen in to the story and participate as a Gentile at the table. So in terms of your Seder, Mm -hmm. okay, so the Seder you do as a church is more or less a simplified Jewish Seder. It is. Right? Mm -hmm. With basically one line added, and that's pretty much what you do there. But what, what... determines when you do it besides the fact that the synagogue is open on the first night and nothing <laughs> right. else so, going on <clears throat> that's a great question i think a lot of christians when they want to participate in a seder or create one they often do it according to their holy week schedule right so they uh christians will say okay well we think that jesus is participating in a passover meal uh, that's also the last supper meal and so uh, we want to do that on the thursday night and then he's crucified on friday and resurrected on sunday so they keep it on that thursday night I don't do that because I don't want, um, I am concerned about my Jewish brothers and sisters perceiving that I'm appropriating all of these things and just using them in my own story. And so, so you want to do Passover? I want to do Passover on Passover Jewish night. Passover time. I want to do it according, if I'm really trying to keep Exodus mm-hmm. and Torah, I want to do it according to when it's commanded. So though my, though our calendars aren't syncing up anymore, <laughs> um, I want it to, I want to participate in the actual practice of Passover on Passover night. And the only reason why we'll change from either first night to second night is dependent upon what congregation Eitz Chaim wants to do. So one year, a couple years ago, the first um, night of Passover was on a Shabbat or the second, second night. night was Shabbat. So second easier. night was Shabbat. Yeah. So, so we didn't, so we switched around to make sure that Shabbat could be kept as well as, you know, in homes and then people didn't have to travel for the Jewish community. So we move to either first or second night, depending upon the preference of congregation Eitz Chaim. And I think one of the things that makes me feel comfortable that we are doing this in a respectful way and it is with the intent to educate and, um, and that we sort of have earned our voice, um, of being appropriate within the Jewish community is that we have a Jewish congregation hosting us. I mean, you're letting us, uh, you're facilitating that process for us. Literally. Literally, right? I mean, you've given us the facility, you've given us the caterers, we can make sure that it's kosher. um, And we keep it all in that. And so what we do when we, when we teach it to Christians and we celebrate, we try to keep it as a, as a Jewish Passover and try to understand it in all of that entity. We have one or two lines where we say, Hey, and also by, as, by the way, as followers of, of Jesus believing Yeshua HaMashiach, then this also has additional meaning to us. Um, but but like that's... What? Uh, well, we talk about the Afikoman, even though it's later that it goes away and then it comes back and maybe ah. there's a little bit of a likened unto, unto that. We talk about the Passover lamb um, because our gospels talk about Jesus as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Um, the gospel of John talks about that. We talk about Jesus as a Passover lamb. So, so there's like one or two lines, but for the most part, um, in fact, we've had Jewish members, Jewish friends come and attend the Seder with us because it's kosher. They can come, you know, there's no leaven anywhere in the building. You, you guys have made sure of all of that. And they've sat there and they've said, wow, this is just like the Haggadah that I do in my home with my Jewish family. Yeah, you had that one or two lines of explanation for the Christians in the room, but essentially it's a Jewish Passover. And that's been helpful for me to also feel like this is something Jews and Christians can do together, um, that we can uh, participate in it with one another. And that's, that's been joyful for me. So when you mentioned that Jesus was the lamb, mm-hmm. okay, to take away the sins of the world. Okay, so here in my Jewish 
right. technical Bible mind go, a sin offering is not a Passover offering. Right. So a Passover offering is a chagigah of sorts. It is a festival offering that you eat part of you right. know, and you celebrate with. And a sin offering is for when you sin and you don't eat any of it. The altar eats it. The offering kohen right. priest eats it. But the offerer doesn't right. eat any. No, right. There's no celebration there. So when I hear about those two functions of one celebration, hmm. of one sacrifice, I go, but wait, this is not what would have happened. Now, in truth, there would have been a sin offering as a part of a chain of sacrifices mm-hmm. uh, for the day, the extra one for the day of Passover, but not for the Seder. Right, That is, right. the Passover lamb right. was a separate phenomenon. Right. Unless you say that the opening dawn and dust <laughs> sacrifices... So, but you know what I'm saying? So right. This is my being technical. No, I think the technicality is good. I think one of the other symbols that, you know, like the gospel writer John is writing in his gospel is the idea that that death is passing over us. So that's yeah, the yeah. right that's the concept that through the resurrection sin and death all of that is defeated forever, right? That that he has conquered death from the grave. So it's the it is the passing over of that death um, that awaits us that we're seeing. So that's the Passover lamb context, and the gospel writer John actually takes great pains to paint it as Passover. Like he has hyssop show up at the crucifixion scene, which was used to paint the blood on the doorposts and lintels. Right, but the word hyssop isn't occurring in in our synoptic gospels. So so John's taking the symbols that are available to him in his wor- in his scripture soaked world, right. And he's grabbing those symbols and and using them to explain what he sees happening or or the telling that he wants to have in that story, um, and and we see that happening throughout all of of our text. Whether we're talking about Shavuot or we're talking about any of our festivals, we're grabbing this the symbols of our scripture soaked world. You know, in the first century, people, you know, the Judeans and the Galileans, the Jewish the Jewish people at that time, they are paying attention to text, and those are the symbols that they have available to them. And yep. the the very first Pesach offering was about that, so it was all right. very symbolic. So the why would first of all it wasn't done in a Jewish site, right? Except it was on your your door, pub, right. Your doorstep, which is not a cultic place, it's right? Not an official place. Uh, it was yeah. done by families. It was not done by priesthood. And it's not on an altar. And not it's, on an altar. Yeah. As a matter of fact, what you turn into an altar, can, well, afterwards you paint the northeast side of the altar, mm-hmm. uh, north west side of the altar which is the closest side to the door to the either the tabernacle or the temple you paint the blood there you mm. daub that but here you do it on the lintels and the doorposts as it were two things first of all that's what you're going to be going out of right even though it's protecting you from the thing to right. come in and kill you right it's basically what you're going to come out of and it is at the where the bloody doorway right it's of a birth it's a birth it's, it's a rebirth a birth. yeah yeah and and then you eat the sacrifice, mm-hmm. and then whatever is left, you have the unique restriction that you have to burn everything. You can't leave any of it behind. Right. So, if there were pieces of stuff left over on an altar mm-hmm. regularly, that's okay. They would just be cleared mm-hmm. away with the other rest of the ashes. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it actually has to be burned. One thing I liked, I heard, uh, was that didn't want to give the Egyptians any kind of thought that they'd have any kind of magic power over you mm. by leaving any of the sacrifice hmm. there. Hmm. And the question is whether or not the people would have thought they would right. have had, you know, that kind of sympathetic right. magic. Right, right. That's interesting. When you talk about the hyssop, 
It's Ezov, and Ezov means Ozev, which means to leave, hmm. to go away. So hmm. you're painting the blood with, uh, That's interesting. Uh, with the word, which means to leave, to go away. That's interesting. Oh, it's more fun than that. I mean, you can just go down a deep, deep, deep rabbit hole with all the symbols. In the right. Exodus. Well, and then I'm thinking immediately, of course, Jesus is leaving and going away, right? So there's that concept in, <clears throat> in that first century gospel story as well. I mean, crucifixion. to think yeah. about, and we talked a little bit about, before we started talking today, about the uh, concept of whether or not it was a Seder. Mm-hmm. The Last Supper was a Seder. And if it was, was Jesus a, a sacrifice, you know, Passover mm-hmm. sacrifice or not? But what's really different is that inaugural sacrifices are usually different. Hmm. Interesting. So this was the first sacrifice of the Jewish people. It was in Egypt, on your doorstep, you know, all these different rules that apply to it. And after that, it's all different, right? Right. Like the inaugural circumcision of Abraham. It doesn't happen anymore to old guys. Now it happens to babies in eight days. That's right. So all the inaugural types of things. And so to the extent that Jesus factors into Christian thought as being a sacrifice for whatever constellation of purposes. Right. That is part of the unusual transitory nature of the inaugural act of anything. Right. Right. And it's also... And a nice concept because I think later on we get to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we'll read the author, and that's a very complicated book, and David Stern translates that title as Messianic Jews, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, a passage in Hebrews 10 that'll say, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body uh, once and for all. This is it. Like the sacrificial system now is is done. We don't have to continue to participate in offering up these sacrifices over and over and over again. This was the sacrifice. And that's fine. The The challenge is that I think a lot of Christians go, okay, so Jesus crucified and rose again. And then that was it. They stopped going to the temple, right? They st- they understood immediately what this sacrifice meant and they were never at the temple again. But that's not what our text says. Our text says that they were daily at the temple courts continuing to pray. They're still making offerings. In the book of Acts, all the way in Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul is all the way past Ephesus and he's like, I got to get back to Jerusalem for Shavuot. Like I have to be there for that event, right? It's a pilgrimage festival. He's got to be there. So they're still going to this temple. They're still keeping the feasts and festivals. They're still practicing and all this making offerings and i actually had a christian scholar recently say so you know if the third temple gets rebuilt someday right i'm not suggesting that should happen i'm just saying they have this conversation do christians offer sacrifices again you know would would jewish followers of jesus offer sacrifices again and then you have that debate well no of course not because we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body once for all like that's it and he's like but the first followers did so how do you wrestle all that stuff? i'm not suggesting or or advocating any particular position but when we think of things as like having the ultimate meaning we've now ascribed to it the moment it first happened, then we lose the fact that this is evolutionary in terms of how people are understanding events, how, it, how something gets inaugurated, and then ultimately how it gets practiced today. And I think that's one of the arguments that people make when they say, hey, Christians shouldn't celebrate a Seder because Jesus didn't, right? Like, and which is, they would say, the way that we keep a Seder today is not the way that Jesus kept a Seder then. That's well, true. of course not, right? Of course not. There's been 2,000 years of development of history within the Jewish people, and the Seder has moved and shifted, and things have been added, and orange now could be on a plate. All and you of this, could be using a Hogwarts Haggadah. <clears throat> or so. you could use, right, all of that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't elements of the Passover meal and Seder that we see present in our gospel text 
uh, when we look at that last meal he has with his disciples. And we have a lot of those elements in there, whether it's um, taking a cup, uh, whether it's the unleavened bread, um, whether it's the uh, singing of the hymns, the Hallel is sung. And then it's also later on, he's like, can you keep watch with me, which is the night of watching from Exodus chapter 12, part of keeping vigil because God keeps vigil over the people. So there's several elements within the meal that you could point to and say, these are echoes of what has come to be the Seder today. Um, so, you know, it's it's a little bit of a challenge. Do I want to only, I remember when the Ethiopian Jews first started coming into Israel, they were keeping the Seder as they had read it in the text. It hadn't developed along rabbinic Judaism lines in the same right. way, right? So a lot of the Ethiopian Jews were actually standing for the Seder meal, like with their tunics cinched up and ready to go with staff in hand, because that's what it says to do, right, in the text. And then there were other people who had come from Europe and their development of Seder had been different. They're like, no, no, lean back, recline, <laughs> right? which we have reclining in, in our um, Last Supper Passover meal story in our Gospels. Because that's what freeborn Roman citizens would do. So if you wanted to show that you were a freeborn citizen, you would lay on your couch and eat with your right hand, not your left. Right. Right. Exactly. And so then you interpret Passover in light of first century Judaism and within Roman oppression. That's right. And I don't think there's any other way to interpret the Passover story in our Gospels apart from understanding Roman oppression. So we see a, a ragtag group coming in, claiming a guy to be king during the middle of a revolt festival that celebrates freedom from the oppressor and that takes the oppressor out. I think Rome's going to be concerned. I think that um, anybody that's never experienced a Seder reclining hmm. ought to try it. <laughs> yeah. I've done several of them. And uh, as a matter of fact, my wife and I got engaged at a Seder where we were reclining. Of course. How romantic. <laughs> this is very lovely. But... Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a whole different feeling because mm. everything you can't do that if you have a lot of dogs and cats that run. <laughs> we didn't at the time, and 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 you put the tables on the ground and you had lots of pillows and you just recline and right. it's a whole. Then you gotta gotta get up on your knees to pass things. But <laughs> right, right. But you know, you you, you make yeah do. that three sided triclinium meal. Right. That's right. We don't happen to have many servants. <laughs> yeah. And we don't recline. A meter off the ground either. <laughs> right. So when we uh, celebrate Passover on Monday night at Congregation Etzheim, we'll have round tables around the edge of the room for all of the adults. But at the center of the room, we make a three-sided triclinium for the kids. And so the kids all get to model for the rest of us adults that don't want to get up and down off the floor anymore, uh, how it is to recline at the table. And part of why I do Passover is because I want the kids in my community to know this story of how God loves and chooses and calls out the Jewish people, um, how he calls out Israel for this purpose in the world, and how we get to be blessed by that story and listen into it. And I'm thankful for that. That's cool. Do you think it's okay for Christians to keep a Passover or Seder meal? And how do you kind of think through some of those things? Is that comfortable for you? Well, it goes like this. First of all, I think that the more of us who experience each other's Hmm. rituals and meanings, uh, the more understanding we'll have. And actually, sometimes when we have people over in our traditions and we come across a part of the tradition that we didn't really notice sounds kind of like a little too edgy and a little too Hmm. we're cool and you're not, that has an effect on us Hmm. wanting to ameliorate those as well. I don't have any problem with Christians wanting to do satyrs and, and doing them in ways that make them Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have any problem with that at all, just because uh, for all the reasons you said, I've talked to a lot of uh, 
uh, Christian clergy who do officiate at communal seders, sometimes with Jews, sometimes mm-hmm. for their congregation. Mm-hmm. I used to do one with the uh, Lutheran pastor at Stanford when we were both on campus, and and he would drink the fifth cup and toast mm. the Messiah with it. Mm. Interesting. And, and 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 we had a conversation about that, and people asked me about that and said, what if I, don't you, blah, 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 basically. And I said, <laughs> I don't have a problem with him. He's a Christian. He toasts the Messiah. Right. And, and so I came, I've come to an understanding that as long as, and you know, as long as people don't kill each other over these things, mm-hmm. it's okay to watch and participate. We might or might not say amen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we can certainly watch and participate mm-hmm. in such a way that we can be learning from each other and being respectful. I, the part of Christians not doing satyrs that I would say is that there are some people who misappropriate mm-hmm. knowingly and unknowingly other people's traditions and ideologies mm-hmm. and then sell them as if they're their own or sell them as if they're the original correct way to do it right and at that point it's a problem because they're basically taking something that we do mm-hmm. and making it theirs and selling it as that's the way we should have been doing it and you know mm-hmm. they can feel that way mm-hmm. because you know there are a lot of things that certain christians feel about how the world has been made better by christianity and i understand that we all like to think that our religion has had a chance to do something better for the world but uh but at that point when they tell me that what I'm doing mm. is not me, um, that that you know that's that's I have a problem with that. Otherwise, I don't have a problem with with any Christian doing a seder in any kind of way. Fifth cup, Easter eggs. Um, no, no, it's just because. By the way, it says in Exodus 12 that if non-Jews want to observe the Passover, they can. If it's a male, he has to be circumcised. That's only if you're talking about a Passover sacrifice Mm. meal. Mm. But these are not sacrifices anymore. We don't have a temple. Mm -hmm. And so I've always found that it's really wonderful Mm. to have non-Jews at a Seder Mm -hmm. because they feel uh, empowered uh, and unashamed to ask a question, what is that anyway? What mm-hmm. does that mean? Mm-hmm. As long as you got the right, you know, as long as you prime them and say, your questions right. are kosher, please <clears throat> right. do. Because they make the other people, they make Jews who feel like they ought to know it, mm-hmm. com- more comfortable asking questions or at least disagreeing with the answer. Because mm-hmm. if you don't know what the answer is, you can disagree with it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but right. but uh, no, so, so having non-Jews at a Seder and having non-whatevers at a whatever Mm-hmm. is like I say is usually a good thing because if you're you get out of your echo chamber you get out of your echo chamber you hear right. things even if they're not saying anything right you hear how it must be sounding to them mm-hmm. and you go well I can probably say that better or maybe I can lose that right right now that's a threat to a lot of religions sure I can say that better or I could lose that mm-hmm. um being aware of the way we sound uh somewhat exclusionary and elitist not just Jews but anybody Right. Uh, and so losing some of that tood, mm-hmm. you know, is, mm-hmm. is always a good thing because it makes us uh, more humane. I, I think that the challenge comes when we feel like somebody's taken something that's sacred and core to the identity of our faith and that they are, you know, misappropriating it, right? Like I can understand why there would be people, Jewish f- friends of mine, who would be uncomfortable with Christians celebrating a Passover Seder if they were doing it in a way that felt like it was just simply a co-opting of that experience. If somebody, for instance, started saying, hey, every time um, we're going to have a meal, we're going to, we're not Christians, we don't believe in the sacrifice of Jesus, but, you know, and and his life and resurrection, but we're going to start doing, this is the body of 
Christ given for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. And we're going to start using those words to institution at different places. Yeah, maybe I might feel like that's not quite exactly how that should go, right? That the the Lord's Supper is something that is sacred for a lot of people. So I understand if people are wrestling with that. But what I've always appreciated about you is that you are looking for people to find a way in. You're not trying to keep people out. And I, I think that's our intention as well. And it's it matters much more to me, the heart and the intention of the person practicing than it does whether or not they're actually doing one thing or the other. Um, I do get uncomfortable when I feel like if, uh, if I feel like people don't actually have a relationship with somebody within the Jewish community where they can start to be invited to the table and learn from that perspective first. So hopefully there'll be just more opportunities to do that. And after our tour, we jointly led together. There were a lot of invitations from the Jewish members of their tour to the Christian members of our tour to come to Passover. Once you've seen Purim, you have to see Passover. You have to see Passover. And we're, I'm deeply grateful for those natural relationships that are starting to form. And one last thing, which Please. is that... Uh, a lot of Jews who don't keep kosher the rest of the year mm. keep something or something on Passover. Um, mm. They'll refrain from eating certain animals. They'll certainly mm. not eat leavened bread, other types of things. So Passover has that kind of a reset button demographically Interesting. in the Jewish people. That, that Everybody goes up one or ten steps of seriousness. <laughs> I think that <laughs> happens in <laughs> both of our faith communities around this time of year, yeah, right? We have, <laughs> we have the uh, people that all of a sudden decide, okay, it's Lent, so you know, 40 days of preparation before the crucifixion. This will be a great time for me to go on my diet, but I'll use the, ex- the excuse of giving something up for Lent. It's so. a good, anything that makes you do the right thing, as long as it doesn't make you kill anybody too, <laughs> Dayenu, it's a good thing. Dayenu. Thank you so much, Ari.